Hello, friends. It is retreat day. Don't we love a retreat day? We've been up since very early. We got up, we said our prayers. We've been meditating. And now we're on to our first teaching of the day. And I promise you it'd be a fun, jam-packed teaching, and it is. So uh, our first teaching of this beautiful retreat day is on mind training. So our, our Sangha member, Catherine, uh, wrote to me and was asking about mind training, and she thought she'd uh, like to practice it. And I, th I thought, oh, I'll do it with you. We'll do it for fun together. I like to do that with students. And then we had the idea, why don't we just invite the whole song and we'll do a thing. So we decided to do a series on mind training. And so first let's explain what mind training is. So though it's called mind training, I think it should have been called heart training because uh, it's, it's really about uh, attaining the altru altruistic mind of awakening, they call it or the awakened mind, the altruistic mind of awakening. Doesn't that sound lovely? Um, it's a Mahayana practice, this heart training. And uh, sometimes they call it mind developing or attitude transformation. Um, it was made famous in Tibet, though it existed in India before that. And... Um, so it was first brought to Tibet by the 11th century uh, Indian Buddhist master Atisha and, uh, and made quite famous. Every school of Tibetan Buddhism practices mind training, right? They all have different curriculums, but everyone practices mind training. That's how powerful and popular this practice is. So uh, that's cool, huh? And... Uh, and so when we talk about attaining the altruistic mind of awakening, this uh, mind they call bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is the awakened mind. So uh, now bodhicitta is that which a bodhisattva has attained. A bodhisattva, I often think of like a Buddhist saint. It's a, it's a high-level practitioner who has gained some great attainments in his meditation and practice. You can think of the Bodhisattva as a step below the Buddha, uh, a person who uh, with a little bit more work is actually gonna become a Buddha. The Bodhisattva is a Mahayana uh, uh, ideal and it's not in the Theravada school. <clears throat> and the whole, the whole idea of the, of the Bodhisattva and the Bodhisattva vow is to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. It has that altruistic, compassionate component in it, which of course is very strongly Mahayana, right? Uh, so with that said, um, we, uh, it's a, this is a really fun practice. Uh, it, it originally was divided in two. Uh, uh, Tisha uh, has a seven point it's called a seven-point cause and effect method for achieving bodhicitta. So this is what Atisha brings to Tibet. But also there's this uh, other five-fold exchanging self and other method by Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna was another great, the greatest of the, the Indian Buddhist masters. Uh, 
founder of the Mahayana school. We're talking maybe seven, first and second century. The often considered the most brilliant mind after the Buddha himself. So we have a Tisha with the uh, seven point, we have Nagarjuna with the 11 point. But uh, the great Tibetan Buddhist master, Lama Tsongkhapa of the Geluk school, founder of the Geluk school, he created a unique presentation that combines the two. And it's called the 11 point method for generating bodhicitta. And I know 11 and uh, seven and five do not equal 11. I don't know why they did it, but that's what Sankapa did. I found this to be a really powerful practice, this 11 point method. So I thought, hey, let's give this one a try. And once, you, once you've practiced this one, it's so easy to go back and try the other two and see which is to your liking. But I thought, let's do the 11 day. And um, here's the idea. We're given a teaching and an introduction on it today. And then starting tomorrow, we're going to start uh, with the first day and the first point on the first day. And there's 11 points. We're going to do them in 11 days. And don't worry, it's a really easy practice. Uh, each day we'll have one contemplation. We'll We'll tuck it into our brains, and as we're going about our day, while we're working, while we're waiting in line at the grocery store, when we're with our families, whatever we're doing, when you have the chance, we're going to contemplate it. So it's a really easy practice. It doesn't take any, there's no requirements involved. It's just when you find the time to think about it throughout the day. So as you can imagine, this is a, a very, very easy practice to implement. Um, uh, originally, you would do a lengthy retreat on these, and uh, you might you might take a week on each topic and uh, and meditate on these or, or practice these within meditation and mindfulness throughout the day, very very deeply to get a, a deep deep profound effect. But you'll find that just doing one a day and just pondering them from time to time, they are very transformative. And so this time we're just getting a taste. And uh, if you like the practice, you might decide to do it in a deeper way. So you're going to contemplate this during the day. But even better if you could find some time to meditate in insight meditation on each topic during the day, whether it's 10, 20 minutes, <clears throat> whatever you can do. So we'll just do our best to do that. And to make this easier, we're going to go through the, the 11 steps here. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me take some water. I'm going to introduce you to the 11 points here. And then starting tomorrow on our WhatsApp group, I'm going to give a little clarification, a little teaching, an audio recording, put it on WhatsApp. So... All of you can listen to it whenever you have the time. This is going to be a very, very uh, informal practice and series. And so all I'm trying to do with the teaching is to add a little clarity, give you some direction. And I'll do that each morning for 11 days. So I think it's going to be a blast. And I'm practicing it with you. I'm there all the way. Uh, Catherine, sadly, is... Um, is camping in North UK, I think. And so uh, she's going to try to get a connection and watch the videos, <clears throat> but she's practicing with us as well. So that should be motivating to us all. 
with that said, I think I've covered everything. Let's just get right to it. And I made this uh, text available on um, all our social media. For anybody that wants to read more about Bodhicitta and Bodhisattva, you can read about it in my text, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials. You can find the material in volume one and volume three. The actual practice of mind training is in volume three. So lots of information for you to, to uh, read up on if you need to. So the first of the 11 points is beautifully titled, equanimity. <clears throat> so this visualization, uh, we this contemplation, you'll visualize three groups of people in front of you. Friends on the right, strangers in the middle, and enemies on the left. Mine's going to be very unbalanced. I think everybody I know is on the right hand side. So, uh, but contemplate how easily friends can become enemies and enemies can become friends. And also how easy it is for strangers to become either. Reflect on how all these groups are primarily the same in that they all want happiness and don't want to suffer. Try to generate compassion and appreciation for them equally. Endeavor to realize the fundamental equality that binds all sentient beings. So the last sentence plays into the title of this, this contemplation is called equanimity. We're looking to find the equanimity, the, the uh, equalness of all sentient life. And if you uh, remember, this goes back to our practice of connecting, where we talk about uh, uniting in, in, uh, or, or connecting with that which unites us, um, our shared humanity, our wish for happiness and not to suffer, and our shared human limitations that we all struggle with and strive to overcome every day. So this practice is there to show you how fundamentally we really are all the same. And really, you're going to find what really sep separates us is the last one our shared human limitations. We all, we all share the same limitations, but in different quantities. One person has more problem with anger. One person has more problem with maturity. Another person has more problem with confusion. Another with desire. But they are just human limitations. They don't define us. They're kind of, you know, the, these inflictions that we, afflictions that we have to deal with every day. So that's the first one. We're going to practice that tomorrow. On to number two, which will be on Tuesday, contemplate, uh, contemplate that all beings have been your mother. This one sounds kind of weird, but this is one of the most profound of these. I did this practice all the time, and I really noticed the difference in the way I reacted and people reacted to me. I'm excited to see what you guys think of this one. So imagine that all beings have been our mothers, through which we then receive and give motherly love uh, to all sentient beings. So we give and receive love, uh, a love from all sentient beings. Now, you can tell by the sound of this, this is not originally a secular practice. This is a Mahayana practice. And this whole mind training has a, a good feel of uh, rebirth in it. 
Some of our members don't believe in rebirth, others do. We don't emphasize it in, in our group because we're a secular group, but nevertheless, don't let that bother you. These are just contemplations. These are like little mind games where we're playing with our attitude. You don't actually have to believe in rebirth to kind of think about that, you know, in one lifetime or another, all beings have been your mother. And, and you can think about it, even the, even the men you meet, you can imagine that in one lifetime or another, they were your mother. So if you don't believe in rebirth, just have fun with it. Just play the little game and, um, and, and see how it works or adjust it to what's comfortable for you. If you have problems, even, even thinking about rebirth like that, just adjust it to however it works for you. Be creative. But nevertheless, a really powerful practice. Number three is, rem uh, so two, three, and four are kind of all related to this idea of, of beings being our mothers. Number three is remembering the kindness of all mothers. Acknowledge and appreciate the love shown by these mothers and consider all that they've done and sacrificed for us, including the difficulties they went through for caring for us. Uh, this is an easy one, especially if you're a parent yourself and you have kids, you know what you went through. You remember the sleep. I'm a monk. I've never had children, but I can imagine the sleepless nights, the diapers, oh, the throwing of food, the tantrums. Now I know why I'm a monk. I, I did pretty good. Good decision on my part. Nevertheless, you know, really think about how much care and kindness comes from the mother that, uh, you know, the, the Buddhist analogy is always this one of a mother with her only child who's sick in her arms and contemplate that, you know, she would just do anything, even give her own life for this child to get well. Uh, a profound, profound contemplation, yes? Okay. And for the Bodhisattva, they take that contemplation upon their path. Like I always think that the ultimate uh, example uh, of, uh, of a bodhisattva is motherly love, you know, of, of the mother itself, that the bodhisattva sees all of humanity as their own only child. And all they want to do is benefit that, that being. To me, that's the ultimate kind of image of the bodhisattva is the mother. Number four is wishing to repay their kindness recognizing the debt that we owe to all these mothers and our responsibility to repay their loving kindness. So we just mentioned in number three, all the things mothers have done. Well, guess what? Think about now that your mother had to do all those things for you. And what a true debt we have for these people, let alone what they did, but just for how much they loved and cared for us and protected us. Just their devotion to us. Yeah. This is an absolutely wonderful thing. And as you could imagine, there's a lot of joy that comes out of these, yeah? Okay, as long as you're not contemplating dirty diapers, you know, once you get past that, it, the joy begins. Number five, exchanging self and other, a favorite. This is my favorite, I think, out of all of them. Contemplate how everyone, like ourselves, wants happiness and not to suffer. Exchange others' perspective with your own. Now, that's the instructions. I, I take it a step further. So here they're talking about just 
understanding, kind of like the first one of equanimity, understanding that we're all the same and we all want to be happy and not to suffer. Remember, that is everyone's goal in every moment of the day, whether you know it or not, on a deeply, deeply subconscious level, that is the goal in every moment. Some type of happiness, some type of satisfaction, some type of fulfillment, our mind is searching for it. When you can't meditate and your mind keeps switching object to object to object, that's what your mind is doing. It's looking for a greater object of happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment or entertainment, interest, right? And at the same time, it's doing everything it can to avoid suffering in any way, emotional, physical, anything, right? So, but I like to take this a step further and actually imagine others as myself as I meet them. And to me, this is incredible. So when I'm going and, I, and all of a sudden there's a friend or, or someone I'm meeting and I say hello, right away, I, I imagine that person is me. And what is it like to meet me? What is it like to have a conversation with me? And it's the strangest sensation. At first, it's just interesting. But throughout the day, as you practice it, the feeling gets stronger. And you start to really feel like, you know, that you're meeting yourself. And this compassion comes over. I shouldn't ruin it for everyone. You should, maybe I should leave it for you to, uh, to see. But um, you start thinking about, you know, how would I want to be listened to? How would I want to be, you know, treated? It, it's just a, an incredible uh, practice, number five. Number six, faults of self-cherishing. So six and seven could actually be practiced together. And uh, if I was to rewrite this, I would combine. There's a couple I would combine. But Sankapa wanted them separate. We're going to practice them separately. Faults of self-cherishing. Contemplate that self-cherishing is the cause of great suffering. What do we mean by self-cherishing? We're not talking about self-love. We're not talking about taking care of yourself and being good to yourself and respecting yourself. We're talking about this selfish kind of self-cherishing. We're talking about some children and some adults that I know, not in this song, thank God. Me, 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 me. That's all they ever talk about. I'm not happy and my tea isn't the way I like it. And I couldn't find the shoes I wanted. We all know these people. They're probably in our families. Children often have a problem with this. This is what we mean by self-cherishing. We're talking about self-obsession, right? And even picture people like, how about on YouTube with all these celebrities that get all these Botox and get all these, all these, you know, lip implants. And I've seen these videos where they have cheek implants and they get butt implants. So their butts are bigger, but just self-occupation to a, to a huge degree. This is self-cherishing. And in this one, we're going we're gonna to contemplate uh, you know, what? look at the suffering that comes from it. Have you ever met one of those people that is happy? They're just the, the most unhappy people you ever met. They're searching so desperately for it. Number seven is the other side of it. Benefic benefits of cherishing others. Now, though I define self-cherishing as an obsession here, I'm going to go on a limb and say this is different. This is not that kind of obsession. This is 
loving and being altruistic and being kind towards others. These are, this is my interpretations of the two. And maybe my definition, I just exaggerated it to make it really clear to you with the difference between the two. But on this one, we talk about cherishing others. We're just talking about, you know, uh, uh, putting number six aside, you know, getting rid of that obsession we have for ourselves and looking out and reaching out to others. It's the, it's the dimension of community. It's a dimension of family. It's the dimension of, of authentic friendship where we really care about others and nothing makes us happier than to, to have, make our friends and, and loved ones happy and do for them, yeah? Okay, number eight, taking others suffering through compassion. Uh, eight and nine are definitely linked together. They're a practice in Tibetan called Tonglen. It's a very popular meditation. And I used to do this all the time. This is an incredible practice for compassion. This sounds kind of mystical, but there's absolutely no reason this can't be a secular practice for the fact that you know, I, nobody really believes they're, they're actually committing. I'll, I'll explain. Visualizing taking on the suffering of others. And number nine, giving others happiness through love is the opposite. Visualizing giving others your happiness. So in, so in Tonglen, they use a heavy visualization. And they visualize breathing in the suffering of other people and you imagine it as black inky smoke and you breathe it into yourself. When people first hear this, it freaks them out a little bit, but don't worry. And then you purify it inside your body and then you breathe out your happiness and joy in the form of pure white, beautiful smoke out to them. Now, no one has to do that visualization. That's the, visualiza the popular visualization for Tonglen. No one has to take it that far, but that's what I would do. And, the, and so at first, it freaks people out a little bit because let alone am I taking in their suffering, I'm taking in their disease, I'm taking in their, their bad luck, just any aspect of them that's, that's negative and suffering. Because I have enough confidence in my practice that I can purify that. It's not going to affect me. I can purify it with my, with my efforts and I can give them my happiness, my health, my prosperity, my joy. And this practice is so powerful in getting rid of the fear, first of all, of getting people's cooties, you know, their bad, their bad mojo, their bad luck, and that if I give them my goodness, I'll run out. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, our goodness uh, only increases as we share it with others. So that's what I was saying that at first, uh, this practice seems uh, a little tough, uh, a little strange maybe for beginners, but we could do it on a very basic level of just literally visualizing, taking in the suffering of others and purifying it and then giving them your love and happiness. So um, I've always done these together, but again, Sankapa wants to do these in two different stages. We're gonna honor the great Jay Sankapa and do that ourselves. And then in the future, you can do this practice together. A favorite practice of a lot of the members of our Sangha, it's, it's, it's quite beautiful. Number nine, uh, I'm sorry, number 10, special altruistic intention. 
contemplate on one's responsibility in saving all beings from suffering. This is an aspect of the Mahayana ideology, the intention that when you, when you take bodhisattva vows uh, to practice, um, one of the vows is to become a Buddha in order to save all beings from suffering. So the last two are related to that. You don't have to take them that far, but you can contemplate, you know, what is your responsibility to others? What is your responsibility to community, right? We're talking about community, you know? And so we say saving all beings from suffering. And maybe we don't have to say saving. Maybe we can just say, you know, doing your best to help others to be happy, right? So that's that special altruistic intention. And if you think about it, it's really the goal of the whole practice of mind training is that one right there. And 11, generating bodhicitta itself. Contemplate upon, upon your wish and determination to achieve Buddhahood in order to save all beings from suffering. So this is the practice. This is bodhicitta. Um, so the, again, the bodhisattva takes a vow to have to to uh, have a the wish and determination to achieve buddhahood or enlightenment in order to save all beings from suffering we can translate this to uh that you you have the determination the wish the the felt sense of responsibility to improve yourself so you can help others to improve. In one of our prayers, we, our responsibility to the world, we talk about to live a skillful life and help others to do the same. And that's what we're talking about. You don't have to, uh, to say, on the day I become enlightened. It doesn't have to be so dramatic. For me, I just think about it is that every day I improve myself so that I, I can also help others to improve, which we're doing now in our teachings, right? So that's the 11. And uh, again, download the text from our media and you can read each one. So starting tomorrow, we'll start with number one. I'll post a little teaching online for us all. And uh, it's going to be great. And then as far as like interacting, because I really want to hear what everybody uh, is going to say about the practice. Uh, please come to the daily meditations, which are at 1600 UTC on our, on our same channel. And after the meditations, we have a Q&A. That'd be a great time to just talk a little bit about the practice. Or, of course, come to the Wednesday Q&A at 1700 UTC, and we could dedicate the whole Q&A to the practice. And then uh, on next Sunday's uh, teaching, we can talk more about it because it is going to be for 11 days. So I can't wait to see what everybody thinks. I found it just profound. It made, I practiced this for years, and I mean years. And it made such a profound difference on me. Last thing I almost forgot to talk about, let's just describe, Bodhicitta, define bodhicitta a little bit more. Uh, so bodhicitta, the altruistic mind of awakening, the awakened mind. There's two kinds of bodhicitta asserted by the Mahayanas. So we have uh, contrived bodhicitta and uncontrived bodhicitta. And contrived means made up, right? But we could also call them conventional and ultimate bodhicitta. And they're the, they're the difference in attainment. So contrived or conventional bodhicitta 
is the bodhicitta that you'll get from doing this practice with us together, right? It's, it's studying it and having a conceptual idea of it, of kind of figuring it out and kind of understanding where you're going and feeling that altruism, right? Feeling that joy and goodness inside you and seeing how these practices uh, work, but it's still conceptual. Ultimate bodhicitta is much different. It's a direct experiential realization, not an understanding, a realization. And it's a little bit spooky. It happens kind of, it kind of comes from behind. It happens kind of invisibly. You don't just aim for it and achieve it. It's something that sneaks up and all of a sudden you notice that you're acting through it. And what, what we're talking about is this intense altruism in which you really genuinely care for others not to be a good person and to get patted on the back and to have everybody say oh that tarpa he's so nice we're talking about a, a, an authentic altruism that you can't stop and there's no intention in it like the intention we would know it's not an intention like a forward thinking um uh, intention where you pick something and you go for it. The intention's not there. It's a spontaneous altruism that happens. Now, they say that, the, I remember when I had Bodhisattva vows and I was asking my teacher, what does the Bodhisattva actually do in his life? You know, he, had, he has these vows, he has, what is it? And my teacher poetically said, oh, the Bodhisattva doesn't do anything. The Bodhisattva doesn't really even necessarily practice in the way we do. The only thing a Bodhisattva does is shine. And what they meant was there isn't this intention, individual intention to do. It's this in just this spontaneous need to fulfill what arises. The, the, the Bodhisattva, when something needs to be done, he simply arises and does it. He helps when he needs to, he gives advice without thought. It's just the most natural aspect of him. It radiates from him, it shines from him. It's his goodness, it's his care, it's his compassion, it's his, it's, uh, his potential. They shine from him. This is where our practice of shining comes from. So this will help you with your practice of shining. So I wanted to make that clear to everybody. And lastly, Ultimate bodhicitta, when it's attained, that is the first official level of an authentic bodhisattva, right? When you take bodhisattva vows, you're, you're taking, they're aspirational. You take the vow hoping to become a bodhisattva. But with your first experience of ultimate bodhicitta, when they say it's an experience that doesn't reduce, it's, it changes your, your mind forever. It's, it's a, a, a mental state that your mind is, is profoundly changed from that point on. That's the first level of an authentic bodhisattva. Pretty fascinating, huh? Okay, with all that said, I was trying not to make a long teaching. With all that said, it's discussion time, our favorite part of the retreat. This is our first discussion of the day. And so uh, we're going to do some breakout rooms. How many people do we have today? We have, yeah... Should we should we break up the group into two or do you want to do it all together? I'm not going to go into your answer. Is six people too many? No, together is better, I think. 
I think so. It's a small group. And so what I'll do is I won't even make breakout rooms. I'm just going to uh, shut off my stuff and I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. Uh, I'm going to give you guys longer for uh, the uh, breakout room today because you guys were saying it was your favorite. And I didn't take that personally, that you liked that better than my teachings, I promise. Okay, so our topic of discussion is on mind training and developing an altruistic mind. And before I start, let's pop these down in our chat room so everybody gets the chat. There they are. So you guys will remember that everybody sees them. Yeah. Okay. The first question is, what benefits do you see in becoming altruistic, more altruistic? What benefits do you see in becoming more altruistic? Number two, do we have a responsibility for the well-being of others? And number three, how would becoming more altruistic affect your life? On number two, do we have a responsibility for the welfare of others? Of course, everybody's going to say, yes, I want some deeper contemplation. I want to I hear what is our responsibility for others, right? How far does it go? You know, how, you know, that the circle of what we have friends and family expanding that circle to meet others. How, how much can we expand that? Does it sound pretty good? Yeah. Oh, exciting. Okay. I'm going to stop the recording.